sleep is such a huge part of who we are and affects us so much physically as well as mentally. I have a wonderful guest on our episode of the podcast today, Dr. Ashtad Dalal. He's a friend of mine, old med school buddy, and he is a sleep medicine doctor. So you're going to want to stick around with us as we discuss the importance of sleep. Ashtad Dalal is originally from New York State and is board certified in both family medicine and sleep medicine. He completed his family medicine residency and sleep medicine fellowship at Louisiana State University Health Sciences in Shreveport, Louisiana. Dr. Dalal served as chief resident during his family medicine residency. He developed a great appreciation for sleep medicine while in residency and pursued it as a logical progression toward his goal of becoming a holistic physician. His focus is to provide comprehensive and personalized care for every individual patient. His focus is on sleep-related disorders, including insomnia, circadian rhythm disorders, restless leg syndrome, and sleep-disordered breathing, including snoring and sleep apnea. The average human being sleeps for one-third of their life. There is no question that sleep plays a significant role in our lives and affects every individual's health differently. Dr. Dalal believes that there is great value in developing meaningful relationships based on trust and providing personalized care specific to every patient's needs. He currently practices at PMA Health in Arlington and Falls Church, Virginia. All right, so I'm here with Ashta Dalal, Dr. Ashta Dalal. Dr. Dalal, how are you doing today? Doing all right, doing all right. So Ashtad, I'm going to go on a first name basis because we know we've known each other for for many many years. It's been like right. what, 14 years now, I guess, right? Unbelievable. Un- almost 14 years. So we know each other um, professionally, and then also through Doctor College. That time we went through the Caribbean together. Um, we both, you know, originally upstate some some New Yorkers, and we ended up and we're both here in Virginia DC area. So. We'll have a nice, nice conversation. Tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your background a little bit, and uh, yeah. we'll go from there. Sure. So, like you said, born and brought up uh, upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City, the Hudson Valley area. Stayed around there, a little further up north for college in Binghamton. Did political science, philosophy in college. Wasn't really sure what direction um, I was going to be heading in. And then after that, at City College in New York, did a post-bac, post-baccalaureate program for a year. Ultimately, from there, joined you at St. Matthews University, spent two years down there, returned and did a year in Brooklyn clinical rotations, and then a year in Baltimore clinical rotations where we regrouped. And then residency and fellowship were both down at LSU in Louisiana, did a family medicine residency, which was excellent. And then following that time, stuck around down there and did a year fellowship in sleep medicine. I guess maybe for context, why and how did I end up with those decisions? Yeah, so I liked the idea of primary care, family medicine, the idea of 
having to know a little bit about a lot of different things. And then also what is extremely important to me is the idea of the patient doctor relationship and kind of that therapeutic relationship and how real it is. Um, you know, and I think I put a real emphasis on that with really every patient that I see, highly individualized care, you know, is just critical. And then <clears throat> during residency, kind of going through different electives and rotations, you know, did a sleep medicine rotation. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. There's still so much we don't know about this. It impacts literally every part of our existence and our health on every level. And I said, okay, let me do another rotation, another uh, month of this, try this out to see, you know, is this something that I truly want to pursue and, you know, apply for fellowship for? And I did it and I was even more engrossed in it, honestly. And so then at that point, I made the uh, decision to apply for sleep medicine fellowships and was able to do that, completed that. And then at that point, I knew uh, I kind of wanted to return to the Northeast area, kind of closer to family and friends, and ultimately um, ended up in the DC, Maryland, Virginia, and been here just about five years now. And very happy with all of it. I'm a big fan of having you nearby, <laughs> not too far at all. Um, so we're within the hour or so of each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the questions like that I would get, and you know, me the psychiatrist and you the sleep medicine doctor, right? So, and then we've collaborated and we've talked about patients, you know, pretty frequently, like we've, sure. we've definitely like, you know, informally curbsided each other on stuff. Um, and then when I do like my quizzes and stuff, like my TikTok quizzes and all these other stuff that's there, there was one time I did like a quiz on sleep and mm -hmm. mental health and stuff. And I remember one of the comments was like, what is sleep medicine? Like, is that a specialty? Like, what does that even, like people go and become sleep doctors? Like, like, what does that even mean? So can you explain the specialty, the field of sleep medicine and, and what a sleep medicine doc does? To this day, anytime I introduce myself and inevitably in this area, everyone's second question after what's your name is, what do you do? Which irks me to no end sometimes. Um, and I respond by saying, oh, well, you know, I do sleep medicine. I'm a sleep medicine physician. And then you can kind of see their face kind of contort a little bit like, oh, what, what does that mean? And then some, you know, depending on how comfortable they feel, will be like, oh, so what does that mean? You just watch people sleep? That's weird. And um, yeah, that's, know, that's totally normal, right? <laughs> at least gives me an opportunity to uh, shed some light you know, and educate about what exactly the field is, right? And more and more, you know, advertised on TV, showing up in uh, more pop culture, media, movies, TV shows, people are getting familiar with the idea of, okay, snoring sometimes isn't just snoring, it can be sleep apnea. You'll see TVs and movies where people are wearing CPAP masks, usually cast in negative light or funny light, right? Um, to poke fun at the individual wearing it. But still, 
it's out there going through airports tsa you see more and more signs about if you have a cpap machine you know it's okay you know it doesn't count as your regular carry-on and so generally i guess that's the venue through which i try and tell them well you know it's predominantly this you know 80 percent of my practice is easily sleep apnea but then there's really this other 20% that's a catch-all of everything else sleep-related. And so that can include insomnia where, you know, the overlap with mood and general energy levels, um, exacerbating factor for health conditions or restorative feature for health conditions, um, restless leg syndrome, um, this catch-all term of parasomnia, which really, you know, encompasses nightmares, sleepwalking, sleep talking, acting out dreams, all that. So really, I practice all that. I see all that. Um, and that's more or less what the day-to-day -day is. Do you have vampire hours? Are you awake at night all the time and sleeping during the day? Is this the perks of the job? So, so that's not me. That's not me. So fortunately, there are technicians in the sleep lab when we do in-lab sleep studies, and they do have shift work hours um, working through the night, generally uh, 7 to 7 or 8 to 8. I'm fortunate enough to keep kind of regular daytime hours. But yeah, that's a good example of the other type of uh, another type of patient that I see, which is shift work. Um, which can be pretty difficult and taxing on an individual also. It was interesting you brought up like the, the stigma and kind of the association that comes along with the CPAPs and the sleep apnea. And, and you're saying the, the comedic aspect of it is kind of right. like, the, we see this and hear this a lot of times, like, you know, the, and that's when I have patients who have sleep apnea or they have mm -hmm. there's that the groan that like oh, i don't want a cpap and i don't right. use a cpap and i don't want it because i don't want to be that person yeah talk, talk to me about talk to us about that a little bit just like some of that stigma that comes there and some of what what the stuff you're doing because in mental health we deal with lots and lots of stigma so i'm sure there's plenty with that as well most of the patients will come from kind of two referral sources only pretty much across the board with medicine but right one is some other physician, whether it's their primary care or otherwise, has referred them for evaluation of sleep apnea. The other more common, more common one um, that we see is the person's partner is saying, no, 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 you know, this snoring is too much. It's bothering me. It's bothering the kids. Can't go on trips with friends because, you know, they won't sleep in the same room as me, whatever it is. And so then as a result of that, ultimately, going through the evaluation for sleep apnea. The idea is, okay, is this snoring on its own or is there a component of sleep apnea there? And then depending on what the outcome of the sleep study is, you know, gaining objective data, having a, a detailed conversation about what the sleep stu study shows and then kind of what they might call clinical correlation. How does this mesh with the history that we took prior to doing the sleep study? And what do we think the best steps moving forward would be? Generally, you know, I strongly believe that all of medicine should be a team sport, right? The patient's the boss and the physician or the provider should share what options they think are viable and, you know, in their opinion, 
and whatever the patient wants to do, you support them in doing that. When it comes to true sleep apnea, the unfortunate circumstance really is because it's primarily an, a structural issue with obstructive sleep apnea, mainly having to do with the back of the throat, there aren't a whole lot of treatment options, period. And then that too, there's no kind of simple, easy treatment option, right? There's no tablet or pill yet to treat obstructive sleep apnea. And so everything's kind of odd, cumbersome, takes getting used to. And you walk through these different options and you see which the patient might want to pursue first. And ultimately doing that and then reassessing in the future with that intervention in place to see, okay, can we gauge the efficacy and is it working for us? When it comes to the CPAP, you know, the response is heavily varied. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of middle ground. I've given up guessing, you know, how someone's going to respond to it. And like I said, it goes either two ways. One is, oh my goodness, this is the best thing. I can't believe I didn't do this sooner. I feel so much better during the day, more energy, more alert. I feel like my quality of sleep has improved. You know, my partner says I'm not snoring anymore, all of the above. And then the complete opposite is, this is the worst thing on the planet. My sleep is subjectively the worst it's ever been. And I want to break this machine over your head, you know? And there's like very little middle ground there. We hear this, you know, unfortunately, like on, on our end of things a lot of the times, right? And and it's one of the things that we, you know, we struggle with at times is, is patient adherence at times, right? To treatment protocols and whether it's effective or not effective. And it's hard, right? It's difficult when we're we're dealing with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, the follow-up component is important. Because if this isn't working out for the patient, okay, that's not necessarily always the end of the road, right? And so having a conversation of, okay, if this isn't working for us, then let's see if there is something else that may work for us. And at least at the very least, having that conversation, you know, and that shared decision making. My approach to medicine is very similar in regards to the patient's one who's driving where we're going and we're here to kind of steer the wheel a little bit and make sure we don't go careening off the road or something but you know we provide provide everything we can we provide the information provide whatever expertise that we may have to help uh help the patient do well ultimately exactly sleep you you said before that sleep has so many roles and functions in our health right we spend what a third of our life we're in theory in asleep um you know, a little anecdote that I say to my patients is sleep is rest and rest is short for restoration. Um, and this is, like yeah, it's, take, you could take it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I stole it from somewhere. So it's okay. Um, tell us about the role, the importance, the impact of sleep on physical health. And then we'll jump into mental health a little bit later. But let's start with what does it do for our bodies? What happens to our bodies when we don't get enough sleep in our health as a whole. It's our body's way of restoring itself, right? And so it's been shown if you do not get adequate sleep or you sleep, right? They, as a form of torture, they sleep deprive people, right? Because there will be a breakdown. The body is not made to sustain staying awake, you know, for days at a time. It really isn't. And so it's the body's way of, repairing and healing itself really and if it doesn't happen regularly 
then real health issues can develop. And there's a myriad of different ways that this can manifest. So I guess one of the bigger ways is if we imagine the endocrine system, which relates to all the hormones in the body, primarily are based on our circadian rhythm. And so these hormones are produced and released based on that, or at least the great majority are. And so if they aren't able to be produced and released based on our physiologic changes when we sleep, this will wreak real havoc on our whole system. That's maybe the biggest kind of overarching part of it, off which there will be multiple, you know, offshoots that can later on, you know, lead to other health issues, health disorders, and not to um, mention how we feel the next day, right? Energy level alertness, which again goes back to the hormones. So that's maybe the biggest one, right? Because they're the ones that keep everything functioning and send the signals from the brain to our individual organs on how to function and how efficiently to function, um, when they need to be ramped up and when they need to be tamped down. They're kind of controlling everything. So if those are kind of out of whack because we're not sleeping, then every single organ system is gonna be impacted by that. I always give the example of like bodybuilders right? Mm -hmm. People who are like professional bodybuilders, big chunk of their day in so much of their, their design of their diet and their exercise, it's not like they're just spending 20 hours a day in the gym. No. Right. And, and if you interview them and you talk with them, they'll say like, the most important part of my day is the eight to nine to 10 hours of sleep that I get every day. Because uh -huh. that's where the muscle repair grows. That's where the size comes with these people. Again, like the you know, I think there was an article. I think you had shared it with me a couple of years ago that and the NBA article, yeah, um, that which was again, and you know, I think we're, we're both big sports fans. Is that there was a huge ESPN article about the importance and the role of sleep and how so many of these players and the teams are kind of devoting resources to rest and sleep and you know especially with the traveling cross-country traveling exactly. that goes on and every yeah. and the, the the shifting of time talk a little bit about that i guess just like the you know impact of travel and and timing and sleeping and and when we're kind of living these hectic schedules yeah and i'll also go back to kind of the idea of the bodybuilder you know friends with a few pediatricians and you know let's tell them if child's you know, you know not willingly going to sleep or the sleep is disrupted um you know emphasizing this idea to the child that you know if you want to grow up and become grow tall you know and strong you have to sleep and that's not nonsense because growth hormone is released primarily at night when we are sleeping as children and especially you know prior to puberty is highly important and if that's not happening, and they've actually done studies, can actually stunt growth. Kind of further emphasizes the importance of getting adequate sleep, especially kind of in the pediatric population. In terms of the athletes and kind of the time zone changing and um, cramped schedule, not necessarily unlike kind of shift work, really. They call it a rhythm for a reason, circadian rhythm because sleep itself is wholly psychological actually 
it is just like with so many things in life based in patterns, routines, um, and behaviors. And if we shift that pattern or routine to one that's not conducive to our lifestyle otherwise, and don't automatically revert to whatever our routine is, regular routine is, it can actually be self-proliferating. And then that's where you get into these real issues of insomnia or true jet lag that then may, you know, develop into true insomnia if the person's not able to revert back to their previous sleep-wake schedule. And then, of course, we said, if we're getting sleep-deprived now as a result of insomnia, that restorative function of sleep is negated. And then also in that article I had sent, it was talking about kind of repair part, not just restoration, but repair. So after, you know, all this massive physical exertion these uh, athletes were doing, was showing that actually their healing time from whatever ailment or injury was markedly better if they had achieved better, more adequate sleep as opposed to not. The impact of sleep and the role, the importance of it on mental health. And this was, you know, definitely one of the ways that we kind of like reconnected or connected more per se was definitely when we were hitting each other up for tips on this. Like, hey, I got a patient with this. I got a patient with this. And what's going on? And, you know, there's so much emphasis that I put with my patients of all ages of sleep for, again, all the reasons that we're kind of discussing. I, I have this one patient in, in mind you know, a teenage girl and like she's always been like i'm tired i'm tired i'm tired and you know i kept emphasizing like the sleep hygiene the sleep hygiene and like the routine that needs to come along with that and the impact that'll have on mood attention psychosis right. even at times i tasked the family almost with like you know especially during covid and kind of the separation of like work and school or home and school and all those things that came along with it of building a separate study room and kind of like building that out and you know they did that over a series of months and then like you know when we talked they were like oh my god this was a night literally like a night and day difference mm -hmm. when we're able to kind of like go to the study room and do my work over there and then sleep in my own room Clear boundaries. All, the boundaries was huge right yeah. so that a massive just impact on the mental health of these people so talk a little bit about that if you could sure yeah you know i think uh this COVID 19 pandemic has thrown well it's thrown everyone for more than a loop right and it's impacted everyone right doesn't matter age gender race socioeconomic status doesn't matter everyone's life was impacted by the pandemic and then i would see a lot of patients where they would come in and go you know i had no issues with insomnia and now, you know, I can't, there became this kind of delayed phase sleep disorder where they're going to sleep later and later. And you think about, okay, so what changed? Everyone's working from home, right? And so now I don't have to wake up an hour, hour and a half earlier. I don't have a commute. Why not stay up later the night before? Why not have dinner later? Why not watch that extra episode and, you know, binge watch this TV series? There's nothing stopping me. I, you know, there's nothing else to do really. And I don't have to go anywhere. And it was this real shift, right? And so they changed their sleep-wake schedule either knowingly or unknowingly. 
And then like I was giving the example of jet lag precipitating true insomnia, that's what happened in this instance. Uh, so much so that kind of the term uh, coronasomnia got, gets floated around, right? So it's insomnia related to coronavirus, more or less for the reason I just gave, applies 100% to uh, students as well, right? In grade school, I'm not going in anywhere. School's on my computer, you know, maybe even in bed, if not one step away on, in my, on my desk in my room, I, why do I have to shower even? You know what I mean? Like there is a, there's no pressing matter to any of it. That became a real issue, remains a still a big issue. And to be fair, even prior to the pandemic, if this change occurs in an individual's life, regardless of age, you know, where the routine changes, that is going to potentially result in this kind of, like I was saying, self-proliferating, extending circumstance where it's true insomnia. And I tell people a lot of times, once you're in that routine, it can be extremely difficult to break out of it. And I also, in terms of trying to set expectations, tell them a lot of times when trying to go back to a more ideal sleep-wake schedule, things can get worse before they get better, actually. And kind of helping them kind of rationalize that for themselves. The other tricky part, if there is no self-discipline and consistency in terms of focusing on one's sleep, it's not going to work, you know? you do even one thing and it can negate the whole process. Daylight savings time throws everyone for a loop, unfortunately, right? But if you already have issues existing prior to, and now you got to go through this two times a year for no fault of your own, really, other than living in a society, can be extremely difficult. I definitely see like whenever it's that November and March, that daylight savings time, Yeah, it's like, things things go a little bit off the rails for people right and we see a lot of people and they're like i don't know what happened i don't know what changed i didn't do anything different right. and i was like and a lot of the times it's that week or two of when i have those patients around that time i was like well what happened a couple of weeks ago and they're like i don't know nothing and then you're like the time changed and they're like oh yeah and the next time i see them a lot of times they're doing a lot better so I'll give you another example, you know, not necessarily pandemic related, but perhaps amplified by the pandemic is this idea of revenge sleep procrastination. So, and this applies again to all ages, the idea that during the day we wake up and we are doing things, fulfilling obligations, duties, appointments, meetings, communicating, not necessarily for our own self. We finally get home at the end of the day and we're still maybe, you know, doing now tasks that we have to do for ourselves that we couldn't do earlier in the day. And then finally, nighttime comes. Rather than sleep, I'm going to do something for myself because I was deprived of that the whole day. I'm going to do whatever I want at the price of sacrificing our own sleep though. And whether we acknowledge it or not, could have ramifications ramifications the next day, right? In terms of our energy level and alertness and how we feel. And so 
that concept and discussing that um, and explaining that to patients is always very interesting. And sometimes it helps to talk it out because they might not be even cognizant of, you know, that's what they're doing. And even after I say everything I just said, they'd be like, no, nah, but you know, that's not me. They're like, well, kind of sounds like that might be, you. <laughs> you know, that takes that a long time to kind of have that mindset shift, you know, like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I am doing some of that, I guess. Yeah, I definitely identify you know, personally with that. Like, you know, I have my three little kids and I have to like spend time with them and my wife and, you know, put them to sleep, put everybody to sleep. And then it's the end of the day kind of, and I'm like, well, I still didn't get to work out. So like, you know, I've been forced almost to be in the situation of I'm working out at like nine or 10 in the evening, 10, it's 11 in the evening, which is terrible. Right. Cause terrible. I, you know, I, I take a pre-workout and I have some caffeine oh, in that time. Right. And it throws everything off. Why are you off. telling and me all this? This is I, I know. hygiene. <laughs> extremely terrible right and this has impacted me for a bit for a little bit because then i'll have stuff you know i'll work out and then i'll be up and i'll be like well now i have to watch an episode of this now i have to play video games i have to you know progress in my season of madden or beat the next level and x y and z and next thing you know it's like two or something in the morning two three in the morning and you're like oh no then i have to be up at 6 30 to get the kids ready to go to bed and it causes this, this just yeah, build up and it's, cool, yeah. it's a very, it's a vicious cycle. How do you help people kind of balance that aspect of like, Hey, I understand that you need to kind of do these self-care things for yourself, but still get to get enough sleep that you need in order to function optimally. There's so many different personality types um, across the board. But I think geographically where we're located, you know, this DC, Maryland, Virginia area, first of all, there's tons of transplants here, right? And people come here with the goal of progressing in some way, you know, whether it's academic or career, highly type A, generally highly motivated individuals which in turn also can translate to highly stressed out individuals. It becomes even trickier to say, well, you know, what are we doing or are we doing this, but at what cost to ourselves? And it has to come, and this sounds, you know, cliche and corny, but it has to come from inside. You can provide the tools, the outline, the, you know, whatever guidance, but ultimately, the individual is responsible for themselves to see, okay, well, within the parameters of my life, my routine, my schedule, how can I at least maximize, you know, this balance? And it is a balance for sure, you know, and I always tell people you can't apply everything to everyone, you know, that you read in a medical journal or, you know, you can, just can't do it. You have to find what works best for you individually and at what balance that is, and then proceed with that. It does not have to be an all or nothing type of thing at all, is my take on it. Having them come to this realization or understanding, you know, depending on um, the feel I get from a patient when I first meet them and we're having a similar conversation about these issues, you know, I'll say something 
with a little bit of, uh, you know, drama behind it, which is, you know, if this wasn't a problem, you wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? Obviously, this oh, is yeah. impacting yep. you to some degree, or at least some aspect of your life is being impacted enough that you sought out seeing a sleep medicine physician. Let's talk about that and see, okay, what it is that we perhaps can do to best move forward, you know, to ameliorate some of these issues so that we're able to progress, you know, and sacrifice less at our own, at our own sacrifice, really. It's the same thing when I have people come to me and, and it's one of the things like in training that I, I learned is to ask the question, well, why now? Right. Why now? What's, why are you here in front of me today? And that kind of ups the ante a little bit because you're like, right. if everything was good, you wouldn't be here. Right. Right? right. But now, but now you're here and let's try to sort of things out a little bit. One of the things that we've been seeing a lot during the pandemic as well has been the rise of like the adult ADHD. Um, it's one of the things that I, I do a lot of work with and talk about that. And I'll, I very much keep an eye out for like, well, how's your sleep? And you know, we know there's the connection with ADHD and sleep with kids, but then also right. with huge with like adults as well. And you know, we how much of this is, hey, I'm, I'm running on two hours of sleep and now I can't focus the next day and I'm slamming energy drinks and X, Y, and Z to stay awake and the cycle that comes with it, or I'm, I'm on Instagram and TikTok all night long and here we go. Talk a little bit about that if you could. Sleep apnea and narcolepsy are so commonly misdiagnosed as ADHD that it then masks those issues maybe until later on into adulthood, you know, young adulthood, where then maybe the medications fell off. It can mask those real underlying sleep issues with the medication and not really treat the root cause. And that can be exceedingly difficult. And I've got several patients where this is the case, both sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and some with both actually. Narcolepsy is a huge thing, right? It's definitely huge. one of like, when we're talking about ADHD evaluations and kind of that discerning eye that you're brought up before, narcolepsy was always one thing that we had to always rule out, right? That was like the one thing, you know, and again, sleep apnea as well. But then we get into this kind of like, you know, aspect of utility is like, are we, if we're doing an evaluation for somebody, are we getting a sleep study on every single person who comes in for ADHD evaluation? Like, so if you're a person, a younger person, young adult person, let's say, and you're concerned about like, let's say ADHD, and then you don't know if sleep is a thing, what is, what would you recommend? And I guess both of us kind of recommend as like the best approach to that, or do you check for everything and see what hits. Just thinking back to kind of med school and residency, the most important thing is careful history taking, right? I think that's the first place to start. This might bring up a bigger issue is, you know, with pediatricians or primary care physicians, who's got the time to ask the 20 questions that are needed, do the three or four different uh, questionnaires for scales, right? That's the unfortunate part, honestly. What's the ideal? That's the ideal, you know? Through a careful history, I think you're able to kind of 
better delineate, okay, what might actually be going on here and now what direction do we want to go into? Of course, if it's fuzzy and you know many times it is, then maybe you go into multiple directions, right? But I think the first part starts with going through all the questions systematically with the patient. And I mean, every time I conduct a interview, do a history, you know, and we're talking about, you know, circadian rhythm disorders or insomnia, I say, let's start at the beginning. So what's, you know, what, when do we wake up in the morning? And then I'll say, and then? And then what happens? And that, you know, and we go stepwise through the day. And I want to know when you're having your meals and what your meals usually look like, what medications we're taking, what other medical problems we have, because it's all related. Getting a picture that way, you know, is there anything else I need to know? Was there, you know, trauma as a child? Did anything happen recently that brought this on? Was there any added stress at work or financial or family stressors? whatever it is, right? Because again, everything, everything is related really. And then, you know, you try and tease it out from there. You know, the other part is in a very real way, it's like going to see a barber and asking if you need a haircut, right? If you're going to see me, we there's a very good chance we're going to do a sleep study. And at the very least, you tick the box, right? You say, okay, well, it's not this. So now let's really focus fully on this and move forward with this, right? Um, and I do think that's sensible. I don't think that's, you know, futile or useless at all. I think that's important to tick those boxes because the last thing you want to do also is miss something that's common that if treated would provide a real benefit to that patient. And the other tricky part, right, is need not be one thing and it hardly ever is just one thing there very well may be a component of insomnia but what's saying there's no uh no possibility of them having concurrent anxiety or depression or mixed anxiety right and that's probably more of the norm actually if you had to give people just general sleep tips uh, for people on a, on a broad spectrum what what would you kind of advise or recommend for the general population? Usually I say the foundation, and they use this umbrella term sleep hygiene, right? That's like this catch-all for behaviors, strategies to best help get the best quality sleep that we can. I say the foundation of that is having a set sleep-wake schedule, which is to say going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day, regardless if it's a workday, non-workday, weekday, weekend, doesn't really matter. To keep that schedule locked in is the most critical. Without that, you can't possibly build upon or improve one sleep schedule if that's not in place there. You know, And then after that, it becomes, you know, I wake up or I'm either I'm unable to go to sleep or I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. Other big point I always tell people is don't look at the clock. The last thing you want to do is look at the clock. It's only going to serve two purposes. One, it's going to stress you out more. Two, it's going to help you do some mental math, which you really don't need to be doing. You know, oh my God, it's 2 a.m. What am I going to do? I've got to wake up at 4 a.m. to take the kids to school. You know, this is terrible. No, we don't need that. And I tell people, you need an alarm, you're going to hear the alarm. And that's it. 
I'll tell you a quick, uh, quick story. I was at some boutique hotel and um, they had this black fabric envelope on the nightstand by the bed. And in like beautiful gold embossed lettering, it said, good night. And I was like, what is, uh, or it might have said sweet dreams. I think it said sweet dreams. Um, it's less creepy than good night, sweet dreams. Um, I was like, what is this possibly for? Like an empty fabric envelope and it had like a little Velcro closure for the envelope. And there's a little cutout at the bottom of the envelope. And I realized the idea is you put your phone in the envelope, close the envelopes, you could still charge it through the cutout. But the idea is you're not gonna be tempted to grab it either while you're going to sleep or in the middle of the night to look at it. And you know, while we're in that kind of in-between state of sleep and wakefulness to do some sort of complex action of opening something and pulling it out we're less inclined to do that than we are during the day you know what i mean and so it's like a deterrent to look at your phone i thought this is very clever actually i think you have to kind of like uh jump on that and maybe start marketing that as <laughs> part of your part of your packages i think yeah i know for sure like the the phones at nighttime are are the bane of everybody's existence right now and you know parents is to personal especially if you're else. looking at the news before going to sleep on your phone that's oh my goodness oh the news pivoting a little bit let's let's talk about it so so we were med school buddies classmates and stuff like this and you know we took circuitous routes to get to where we go to and i think a lot of people don't fully understand what it means to be a caribbean med school graduate and person who's matched over here. Talk to me a little bit about your journey and any, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, the, I will say it, the, the fuckery that was involved with. I was going to say that, no bad words. We're going to, we're going to, we can say plenty of bad words. The fuckery involved with uh, the Caribbean med school experience. And, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be just tied to our school. Yeah. So Curious Root is a nice way of putting it. You know, I think it comes down to, um, determination, I suppose, right? Individual determination. This is what I want and I'm willing to do whatever it is to get to that point, period. And those schools offer an opportunity to do so at a very real cost, financial and otherwise. We lost so many people along the way, right? I mean, just people just dropped, you know, fell off and, you know, never see them again. And high attrition rates and, I mean, for-profit schools, it's in the news right now, right? That paying back loans for students who attended these um, for-profit grad schools with a promise of X, Y, or Z upon graduation that, um, you know, weren't actually feasible. So the more striking part, especially when I was in residency and, you know, working with and teaching medical students and even now how little so not little just the lack complete lack of support and guidance one receives um at a caribbean medical school and you know i don't think it's unique to anyone i think that's you know having friends who have attended several different ones that's been the experience especially as compared to U.S. medical schools, where 
the guidance and support is tremendous and it's consistent throughout. If you wanted to do it, you had to do it yourself. No one was going to do it for you. And most times no one was going to help you do it either. And I almost want to say like, at times they felt like you were, you were, they were working against you. You know, they, they didn't want to, they almost, they didn't want you to make it through because I think like you were saying, like it's the poor, the for-profit component of it where they're like, well, we can fail you and you'll just repeat it semester and we'll try you the semester tuition. And it's, it's money for them essentially, right? Like, like we were, we were an endless supply of money coming into them. There is that component. And at the same time, you know, I think it's important to keep in perspective the opportunity afforded, perhaps at that cost and others. At the end of the day, I think the pros outweigh the cons there. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I think the pros outweigh the cons for us who made it. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's a very different experience, I think, for people who, who you know, again, we were, I want to say we were on the lucky side of the of the minority who almost, I think, made it through and matched out versus people who didn't right those that high attrition rate like again it's 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 really hard right really hard and then, and then the the packing up every four weeks six weeks whatever eight weeks during rotations you know they're like oh you're going to go to chicago and here you go to brooklyn and next time next week end up in you know maryland like really hard right <laughs> really really difficult yes you know, like I said, we settled down in D.C. and we've been in, in D.C. and I think we alluded to it a little bit like, you know, we've this is a very high paced kind of way. I know you were you were outside of New York. We we're both New Yorkers, originally upstate New Yorkers. So we have that kind of experience of, of what the New York City culture is to an extent. Um, but the D.C. has its own very unique kind of yeah. experience. And then especially during these last, you know, four or five years, we're politics involved and all this stuff going on and it's right there you know and i actually i live in downtown dc and do that reverse commute every day so for better or worse i've had what feels like front row seats to the circus these the entire time i've been here actually a lot of times it's very fascinating and i mean it still feels unbelievable to be living in a place where the local news is actually national and sometimes, well, many times international news. And in a way, you know, I kind of find that fascinating to be right in the middle of it. There's other times, more so in the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, where it felt like, why am I here? You know, I wish I was a thousand miles from here. I don't want to be in the middle of the circus. I don't know. It's truly unique because it's the center and hub for, of course, politics, but also as a result of that, actually, a ton of businesses are headquartered here. I like the idea of the diversity because, I mean, D.C. in its truest form is a highly diverse city. You know, it is not at all really what's represented on uh, TV shows and movies at all. That part I love. You know, that part I really love. I think it's a beautiful city, great food and drink scene, right? And it has a lot to offer. And like I said, you know, people come from all over the country, all over the world to come visit. There's a real draw and appeal to be had here. During these last two years, it felt so bizarre 
to wake up in the morning, get in my car, go either to the hospital or to our office, the hospital where, you know, people were actively avoiding and would rather have heart attacks or strokes at home rather than go to the hospital for fear of getting coronavirus, going in there every day and then working, coming home and then not being able to do anything, you know? And I'm sure this is very much so a shared experience, but just felt bizarre that these streets that are usually packed with traffic were empty. And then that too, right with the CDC here, FDA's here, but especially the CDC during all of this and all the news outlets. And sometimes, you know, you're like, oh, I just want to pull my hair out. It's all so frustrating you know, just stop, stop getting on TV, stop, you know, giving interviews, right? The fact of the matter is no one knows anything actually, and just leave it at that rather than just trying to fill airtime. You know, so all of that is multiple components. And there's some meme where it's like, I'm getting really tired of living through unprecedented times. <laughs> and then that too, oh, yeah. living through unprecedented times in the nation's capital. It's just unreal. It's it's definitely like a unique experience. Like um, yeah. you know, I'm I'm a little bit further out than you are. I mean, obviously you're you're there. It is, you know, we're we're trying to have a nice boring life right now, right? We're trying to do some boring yeah. stuff and you know, we can't we can't get there. So all right. Well, I'm gonna be respectful of your time. Uh, but thank you so much, Asha, Dr. Dalal, for joining us. Um, we have to get together for some kebabs. Um sooner soon enough uh and we will we will definitely do that so thank you so much for being part of the show sounds good thank you so much for having me